Well, good morning, guys. Welcome back. Welcome back. Glad you're here. If anybody's new, we're glad you're here, and uh, your table will bring you up to speed on the, the handout and all that. Um, I, before we begin this morning, I need to offer a um, correction. Um, I probably should do this every week because I know I probably say things that are not always correct. Um, I don't try to, but it happens. So last week, uh, I made the comment that uh, Abraham was 175 years old when he died, and he died with just two sons. And I've had several guys email me and go, hey, he had more than two sons. And you're right, he did have more than two sons. Um, he had six sons by his concubine. Uh, after Sarah died, he it says he went into his concubine and, and um, had six more sons. But my, my point I was trying to make was that when he died, there were really only two sons that mattered because the other six sons that he had by that concubine were cast out. They were given a gift, and then they were told to leave. And we never hear from them again. They were not part of the promise. They were not promised to be the, uh, the fathers of a multitude of nations. Ishmael was, and Isaac was. And so that's the point I was trying to make, is that God over and over again had said to him, you will be the father of a multitude of nations. He dies at 175 with really just two sons, and that's not a multitude of nations. Um, the promise had not yet been fulfilled. So he did have six other sons, um, by virtue of his concubine, and yet only Ishmael and Isaac were the two sons who were part, who were promised by God that they would become the father of a multitude of nations. So that's my correction from last week. And so uh, I'm just glad guys are listening. So, uh, and they noticed it and they emailed me. So if, you, if I make a mistake, just let me know. It's going to happen. So let me pray for us and we're going to jump right into this next portion of the book of Genesis. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. Um, Lord, I'm, I'm so thankful that you prompted these men to write these words so many years ago um, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit so that we might read them today. And I pray that as we study them this morning, Father, that you would bring them alive into our lives, that we would see things not just about these characters, but about us that need to change. Um, and more than anything, I pray that we would see things about you that we would realize never change, that you're faithful, uh, you're sovereign, you're always in control, you care, you're always there, and that, Father, no matter what we do, we, we can't screw up your plan. So, Father, would you open our eyes, help us to see all that you would have us to see this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this lesson, we're going to pick it up where we left off, and, and one of the challenges in teaching this particular portion of Genesis is... Um, there's a lot going on. Um, every one of these chapters is filled with so much information. And so I really encourage you to read, read the uh, devotionary that I wrote as part of your homework because it will go into greater detail because I'm skipping over some things because I can't cover it all in these sessions. But, but this week I, I've titled it Gone But Not Forgotten because we saw last week that uh, Jacob is basically kicked out. Uh, he's cast out. He's He's told to leave because of what happened between he and Esau, and we'll look at that in just a second. But here's the thing that I, I think we need to remember is that even though he's um, told you got to leave, you got to go to Haran, you, you have to get away from your brother because he's going to kill you, um, God never leaves him or forsakes him. 
And that's one of the amazing things about our God, guys, is that no matter what you do, God never abandons you. He never gives up on you. He never bails on you. He may punish you. He may allow you to reap the rewards of your stupidity, but he does not ever leave you or forsake you. Um, and and that's, a, that's an amazing fact we need to not just know mentally, but understand in our hearts that my God is faithful, always faithful. And, and that's going to come out as we jump into this passage today. So we're going to pick it up where we left off with Jacob, with the help of his mom, Rebecca, cheated Esau, his brother. And it says, now Esau hated Jacob. And you can understand why, right? Because he stole his blessing. He was technically the firstborn. There were twins, but Esau came out first. He's, he's supposed to get the blessing, and yet he gets cheated. And it says, he hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And if you remember from last week, um, Isaac had intended to bless who? Esau, because he was his favorite son. And so he was wanting to bless the elder son because he was his favorite, and he was his favorite because he was a hunter and he was a really good cook, and he loved to eat the food that he made. But things didn't go quite so well. So Esau is not happy, as you can imagine. He, he's been cheated out of something pretty important. And he says, the days of, our, of mourning for my father approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. How angry is he? Enough to kill his brother. Now, we've seen this before, right? All the way back in the early chapters of Genesis when Cain slew his brother Abel out of jealousy because God accepted his sacrifice, but he didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. So here we have it happening again a long time later, but he wants to kill his brother. And, and that news is going to get out. It's, it's going to stir up Rachel, or Rebecca again, and she's going to jump into the, the frying pan, so to speak, and get involved and try to solve things and try to fix things. And it's just going to make things worse yet again. So you have this sibling rivalry that's taking place. As we said last week, really none of this had to happen, should have happened, but it did happen um, because of the involvement of the mom, the dad, and the brothers. And it really gets twisted off really quickly because what you see happen is Esau wants to murder his brother. He wants to kill him. He is so angry. He's so upset that the only thing that will satisfy him is taking the life of his younger brother. Now, they're twins, so it's, there's not a big age difference, but he's that hacked because his brother has taken his blessing, the blessing that belongs to the firstborn. And in doing so, he's lost everything. Now, we don't think much about this because um, I didn't receive a blessing from my dad. Um, I was the fourth of four. I had two older brothers. My dad on his deathbed did not dole out blessings. Um, he didn't even dole out an inheritance. Um, there wasn't a whole lot left by the time we paid for everything for their living expenses and their funeral expenses. So we, I didn't get a blessing and I don't really, this doesn't resonate with me, right? And I've told my kids, guys, you're going to be sorely disappointed when I go because there ain't going to be anything left for you. Um, but he's mad. He's upset. And it's important that we understand why. See, Esau understands the severity of what's just happened. 
what it's done to him, but not just to him, his inheritance, his family, his offspring, his, his future generations. It has long-term implications. That's why he says, no wonder his name is Jacob, for now he has cheated me twice. First he took my rights as the firstborn, and now he has stolen my blessing. And we just briefly talked about this last week, that earlier on in chapter 25, we saw that Jacob had also really not stolen, but taken his birthright because Esau sold it to him. Remember, he comes in from hunting, hadn't killed anything. He's hungry, and he wants something to eat. His brother Jacob has just made some stew, and he goes, give me some of the stew. And he goes, I'll gladly give you some stew, but you're going to have to sell me your birthright in exchange for the stew. And he does. And he basically dismisses the value of his birthright. Well, now he's lost the blessing. What's going on here? The birthright and the blessing are two different things, and this is critical for us to understand. The birthright was usually given to the firstborn son, Esau came out first, so he's the firstborn, and it guaranteed him the largest portion of the family's estate. Now, you can see now why he's so upset. And then Esau traded it away for what? Stew. He, he just sold it for a bowl of soup. That's, that's the value he put on it. And one of the things that jumps out about Esau is that he didn't put value on things that should have had value. He didn't really care about them until it became important. So what about the birthright? By selling his birthright, Esau had given up his right to be the chief of the tribe and head of the family. That's pretty significant, right? To sell that, something of that kind of value for a bowl of soup. But he was still holding out hope. Hope for what? Hope that he would get the double portion, the blessing. In that culture, the father would give a blessing to his sons and the firstborn always got a double portion. And so that's what he's expecting. Okay, I screwed it up and I sold my birthright, but I still got the blessing. So when Jacob, with the help of his mother, Rebecca, steal the blessing, you can see why I've lost everything. It's gone. I don't have anything. I don't have the inheritance, I'm not going to be the chief of the tribe. I have nothing to give my family, and I missed out on the double portion. And who does he blame? His brother. See, Jacob had robbed him of hope. He had nothing to live for, so to speak. So he decides to lash out on the one who made it happen, his brother. But once again, mom gets involved. Uh, she steps into it and says, but the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. She gets word that Esau is going to kill Jacob. Now, Jacob is her favorite. There's no love affair between Esau and Rebekah. It doesn't ever say that she hated him, but she really didn't like him much because she preferred her son, Jacob. That's why she did all the things she did. So she's going to step in again as she tells Jacob, What's going on? Behold, your brother wants to kill you. And he's going to plan on killing you. So here's what we're going to do. Now, once again, you have to look at this and go, is what she's doing right? Is what she, she's doing the will of God? And one of the interesting things about studying these passages is we, we've talked a lot about the sovereignty of God. God is always in control. God's will will be done. So you step back and go, okay, is what she's doing 
the will of God, in other words, God willed for her to do this, or is God working his will in spite of what she's doing? I tend to think it's the latter, because if what she's doing is wrong, sinful, evil, out of character for God's people, then God is not telling her to do evil. God is not uh, wanting her to do these things this way, but he's allowing her to use her will to step in and do things that he will eventually use to fulfill his will. His will always trumps our will. And, and that's, that's an important distinction for us to understand because she's going to say, obey my voice. Listen to me once again. If I'm Jacob, I'm going, you know what? The last time I listened to you, it got my brother to want to kill me. Why would I listen to you now? But he doesn't. He just obeys everything she says. She goes, listen to me. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while. This is really important. This woman, is she's so in control, she thinks, that she's got a plan that she knows is going to work. Go to Laban, lives in Haran, and we've heard that place before. It's up in the north in Mesopotamia. It's the first place that Abram went when he left Ur the Chaldees. He went northeast, and he went up into Haran. He stayed there a while until his father died. Then he eventually came into Canaan. She's going to send her son back up there to find himself a bride. She says, stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. What's her inference? He'll get over it. He's all get over it. Don't worry about it. He's, he's upset now, but he'll, he'll sleep it off. He'll be fine. You just go up there for a little while, and then you're going to come back. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? So you see in this woman, once again, her ability to kind of think through things and go, I think I know how to fix this. Now, she never admits that she helped cause it, that, that it was her actions that made Esau want to kill his brother, but she now thinks, well, I can fix this. I'm going to send you away. He'll get over it. You'll only be gone a little while, and then you're going to come back when I call you because he'll have forgotten about it. I don't know that if I'm Esau, I'm ever going to forget about this. If you've lost everything, if somebody cheated you out of your inheritance, out of everything you ever had, are you going to just walk away from that? I've been listening to the... Uh, biography of uh, Ulysses S. Grant. And uh, it's really been fascinating because I didn't know much about his later life after his presidency. You know, he served two terms as president. And then he, um, back then they didn't really have a, a um, what do you call it? A, um, a payment that they got as retired presidents. They, they didn't get any kind of payment. And so he didn't really have a whole lot of money and so he got into an investment plan with a young man who came to him in New York City, and he and his sons took all their money and they invested it in this guy's company that had Grant's name on it, and the guy basically, it was a Ponzi scheme, and he lost everything. He lost everything. He went from having what he thought was $1.5 million in the bank to $18 in one day. And the rest of his life, he lived relatively in poverty, but for the help of people who would give him gifts, $1,000 here, $500 there. And it's the reason he wrote 
his autobiography because he was broke. And he never forgave that young man. I don't think Esau was ever going to forgive Jacob for the very same reason. You took everything from me. But she says, she says I'll send you away, and then I'm, I'm going to bring you back because he's going to forget all about it. Go. Listen to me. Obey my voice. I'll send you away. She's still playing the role of God. And from what I've seen in the life of Rebecca, she's a lousy God. She's not really good at it. She thinks she is, but she's not. And this poor kid, once again, is going to listen to his mom, and it's not going to turn out well. And I love how she puts this positive spin on it. Hey, honey, it's all going to be okay. It's okay. He's not going to really kill you. He's just angry. But if you go away, he'll get over it. He'll settle down. You can come back, and everything's going to be just the way we planned it. It's just a temporary setback. It'll all be okay. And poor Jacob buys into it because he too thinks she knows what she's doing. But she can't overcome the will of God. She can't stop what God has in store for Jacob. And part of God's plan for Jacob is that he is going to go away. He, he's going to use all of this, all the machinations of, you know, Isaac and Rebekah and, and Jacob to accomplish his will for Jacob so that he might become the father of the people of Israel. So she's in for this rude awakening. As I told you last week, they're going to send him away and she'll never see him again. So her little uh, assumption that you'll go for a little while and come back was completely wrong, as we'll see. So she goes to Isaac and she says, hey, you know what? If he stays here, she hasn't told him that Esau wants to kill him. She just goes to Isaac and says, you know, if he stays here, he's going to do what Esau did and marry Canaanite women. By this time, Esau had already married two Hittite women. They're Canaanites. They're pagans. And it didn't sit well with either Isaac or Rebekah. And so she says, if he stays here, if Jacob stays here, he's going to do the same thing because there's no one to marry within our clan. So she says, why don't we send him to Haran, to my family, where your servant found me, and he can find a bride for, for himself there. And Isaac goes, that's a great idea. Wonderful. And so that's the plan. Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Paddan Aram, to, Le to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. So she's sending him to her family up in Haran, up in the north. Why? Ostensibly to find a wife, but it's really to keep him from getting killed because of what she's done. So this is the plan. So Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. Up in Haran is her brother Laban. We've heard of Laban before. Laban showed up when Abraham sent his manservant up to the same region, to the same family, to find a wife for Isaac. It's where Rebekah had come from. Laban's the brother, her brother. And so it says, he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. So here we have Jacob leaving home, doesn't tell us anything about the goodbyes, doesn't tell us how the whole thing happened. It just says that he leaves. Gives us no details about, did he take servants with him? Did he take camels? Did he take money? How was he going to buy a bride? None of that is told to us. I don't know why. 
but it just says that he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. So he's on his way, on his way to Haran. And then taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep and he dreamed. He dreamed. Now dreams are going to play an important part in the rest of the book of Genesis. And if you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. But here, Jacob, in his dream, is going to meet his maker, but in a good way. It's, it's not like he's going to die. That would have happened probably had he stayed home, but he leaves, and on the way, he meets his maker. 58 miles outside of his home, he stops for the night. He gets 58 miles, and he stops to rest, to spend the night so that he can go on to Haran, but it, it ends up being pretty fitful, right? He, he ends up having a dream, which in a way was almost a nightmare until it wrapped itself up, until God spoke to him, but he's going to meet God Almighty in this dream. And again, dreams become very important in his life, in the life of his children, and later on in the story of the book of Genesis. So what happens? Well, you've, you've all heard the story of Jacob's ladder. You may not be that familiar with it, but here's a rendition of it, a woodcut. Uh, he has this dream, and in the dream, there's this ladder, this stairway. It's, it's a little confusing in the Hebrew what this word really means. Some say it's a ziggurat. It's a winding staircase that goes into heaven. Some think it's a big, giant staircase. Some think it's a ladder. It can be translated a number of ways, but it really doesn't matter. But it's some kind of device that connects heaven and earth. Okay, in his dream, this is what he sees. And on it are these angels, uh, divine beings going up and down the ladder, back and forth. It doesn't tell us if they're carrying anything. It doesn't tell us what the purpose is. It just says, as he dreams, he sees this happening. It, it's a dream. It's a vision. And once again, those, these dreams will be major story links all throughout his life from this point forward, and they're going to foretell the future. And this one does as well. It, it, it's a picture of things that are going to happen. And, and I need you to listen really carefully to this because I think this is the part of the story that we leave out, that we don't think about, that we don't grab hold of, and it's the most important part of the story, what happens in this dream. It says he dreamed, and behold, there's this ladder. It's set up and on, on the earth, and the top of it reached all the way to heaven, up into the sky. And it says, behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. They're going up and down, back and forth. And it says, the Lord stood above it. Yahweh, God, stands above it. Now, th this word that is translated above it can actually uh, be trans translated beside and there are some who believe that God was not up in heaven looking down. In other words, that's what this translation kind of conveys, is that God's at the top of the ladder, and he's looking down. It really can be translated that he's standing right beside Jacob as Jacob looks up. He's with him. He's beside him. But either way, God is there. He sees God, and he says, God speaks to him and says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. I'm God. So here's this young man who's cheated his brother twice and who is fleeing for his life, 
and he's 58 miles from home, and God comes to him and says, I am the Lord. I'm the God of your grandfather. I'm the God of your father. And what he's going to tell him is, and I'm your God. Why is that important? Because Jacob's going to need to understand that this God of Abraham and Isaac is going to be faithful to him just like he's been faithful to Abraham and Isaac. God's going to say some things to him that are pretty important. He says, first of all, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Listen carefully to what God is saying. Then he goes on, and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. He's basically conveying all the promises he gave, gave to Abraham and that he reiterated to Isaac. He's now giving them to who? This young man. He's telling them, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. Look at how many times he says, I will. He says, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I, I will keep you wherever you go. Why is that so significant? Because he's going to a place he's never been to before to meet family members he's never met before. He's fleeing from a brother who wants to take his life. And everything about his life is uncertain. He doesn't know when he's coming back. He doesn't know if he's going to find a bride. He knows nothing about the future. But what does God say? I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back. It's God promising everything to him. I am your God. You can trust me. You may not be able to trust your mom. You may not be able to trust your brother. Your dad's old and not really all together here, but you can trust me. I'm going to be with you. And he says, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What an incredible promise. What does he tell him? I am God Almighty and I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. Man, put that on a coffee mug. Put that on a post-it note and put it on the dashboard of your car because that promise is true of you as much as it's true of him. God says, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised for you. See, that's, that's pretty significant. He gets these incredible promises of God and he, God is confirming all the blessings that were made to Abraham and to Isaac, but also the blessings that Isaac gave to Jacob. We looked at him last week. Remember when he got ready to send him out, he, he, he gave him a second blessing, so to speak. And it's, it's a blessing of him conveying his hope. Here's what I want God to do for you, son. See, by this time, Isaac has woken up and realized that you know, my favorite son Esau is not the one. I was hoping he could be. I was hoping I could pull a fast run on God and bless him, but I inadvertently, unknowingly blessed Jacob because that was what God wanted. But by now he's realized that, you know what, Jacob, you are that son. And so he tells him, right before he sends him away, he says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. This is all Jake, or Isaac trying to convey his hope that God will do these things. 
He has no guarantees. He's not speaking on behalf of God. He's calling on God to do this for his son. So he says, may God bless you. May God do these things for you. But what does God say 58 miles outside of his hometown? Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. See, he says that you may become a company of peoples. Isaac hopes he grows into a company of peoples. What does he know about his son? He doesn't have a wife. He's wifeless and childless. So all he can do is hope that God will make you a company of peoples. But God says, you will. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Here's the second part of Isaac's blessing. He says, may he, God, give you the blessing of Abraham and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land. I'm hoping you're going to come back and you're going to take possession of the land. I hope God does that. What does God tell Jacob? The ground you're lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. You see what, what's happening here is that all, all Isaac can do is, is hope. But what God does is say, you know what? I can make it happen. It's going to become reality. And I'm going to be with you until it does happen. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of you. And what this young man doesn't understand is that it's going to be two decades before he goes home. Two decades. That's a long time, guys. But God has said, I'll be with you. So he wakes up and he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. I love that statement. It's like he, he landed there and he goes to sleep thinking, I'm just in this obscure place called Luz, it tells us, and I'm on my way to Haran. So this is just a stopover. And yet the Lord is in this place. Why is that important? Because Luz was not anything special. It's just this little town or little, probably not even a village. He just stops there on the way to somewhere else. And yet, what does it say? The Lord is here. The Lord showed up. And it says he was afraid. He, he's in awe. He's, I just saw God. I just heard from God. I had an experience with God and it, it's a fearful thing. And so he says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. I, I love that statement by Jacob because he basically says, this place, this obscure little place where I stopped to take a, a night break is the house of God. God is here. God's in my presence. God is with me. See, anywhere God meets you is literally the house of God. Anywhere you could be driving in your car and God speak to you. You could be at home. It doesn't matter. Wherever God shows up, that's the house of God. God is with him. It's not in some specific place. And he says, and this is the gate of heaven. It's the place where I met with God, heard from God, got the promises of God, the blessing of God. The symbolism contained in this dream is powerful and significant. As Jacob lay in the darkness, separated from his family, facing an uncertain future, a host of angelic beings are moving back and forth between heaven and earth. These messengers of God represent his divine oversight and influence over all that happens on earth. They're doing the will of God. It doesn't tell us what they're doing. It doesn't tell us where they're going, but they are at the beck and call of God. That's what's going on in this passage. 
He's being told, reminded, encouraged to believe that God's will is being done no matter where you go, no matter where you are. Again, he's in this obscure place called Ur, and a ladder, a stairway to heaven shows up. Yes, it's a dream. It's not real, but it's conveying an important message. No matter where I go, God is there. No matter what, what I do, God is there. No matter how bad I screw up, God is there. See, that's the promise, and God is in control. How did he know these were divine beings? I don't know. I don't know what they look like. But he knew that these were somehow divine beings going up and down from heaven to earth, interfacing with man, and they were under the control of a sovereign God. Their movement between the two realms was meant to symbolize his sovereign control over the affairs of this world. They were his celestial agents, carrying out his wishes and accomplishing his divine will among men. I forget about this. I forget about God's sovereignty. I know about it intellectually, right? I, I know he's in control, but when push comes to shove, things don't go well, things go south, bad things happen, I tend to forget that God is in control because my immediate assumption is, where did God go? What happened to God's power? What happened to God's authority? Why did this happen? Why did he let this happen to me? Why did he bail on me? Why did he abandon me? And what I have to remember is that he's there. He's at work. His will is being done, even though it may not look like it or feel like it. See, God's letting Jacob know at this point, 58 miles outside of his home, I'm in charge. Your mom's not in charge. Your dad's not in charge. Your angry brother's not in charge. He's not going to take your life. You're okay. You're going to be fine. The next 20 years are going to be rough, but guess what? I'm in control, and everything's going to turn out well. But Jacob's not convinced. I've never had a dream like this. I've never heard God audibly speak to me. But I think if I'd have had this dream and God had spoken to me in the dream, I think I would have listened and gone, okay, all right. I don't see it, but I'm going to believe it. Well, I'm probably not that much unlike Jacob because what happens to him? He makes a vow. Vows are very tricky things in, in the scriptures. Um, we're warned not to make vows rashly because God takes vows seriously. He makes a vow. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again. Now, before we finish the statement, how does it begin? What's the word that begins a sentence? If. This is a conditional clause, right? If you know anything about the English language, he's, he's setting up a conditional clause. If, then. If you do these things for me, then I'll do something for you. He says, basically he says, if you will give me bread to eat, clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. In other words, I get back safe and sound with a full belly, hopefully a wife, maybe some kids, and I come to this place, then, then the Lord shall be my God. What a dangerous thing to say to God. Hey, God, if you'll do this for me, this is what I'll do for you. And here's the silly thing. I've done this so many times. I've bartered with God. I, I've, 
I've tried to negotiate with God Almighty. If you will get me out of this, then I will do this for you. So it's not unlike us to do the same thing, but he basically barters with God. And he says, and this stone, the one in which I laid my head, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. I'll memorialize this place when I get back. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. I'll make you my God if you do these things for me. Really what he's admitting is that at this point, Yahweh's not his God. He's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. But it's almost like he's saying, well, if you pull off what you've just promised, then I'll make you my God as well. Not a a good thing to do. He puts conditions on his worship of God. He attempts to bargain with the Almighty. Again, free, free piece of advice, don't do it. Don't bargain with God. You can plead with God. You can ask God for things, but don't bargain with God. Don't, don't play the you know, quid pro quo. You, know, you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Just obey him. Just trust him. He says, you bless me and I'll worship you. That's essentially what he's telling God. You bless me, I'll worship you. What's God just told him? I'm gonna bless your socks off. I'm gonna do great things for you and I'm gonna be with you every step of the way. He's already made divine promises. And he's basically saying, okay, if you keep your promises, then I'll worship you. What's what's that infer? You may not. You may not keep your promises. I may not get back. I may never find a bride. My life may not go well. And what we're going to find out is that for 20 years, things won't go well. And there's always going to be the temptation in the back of his head that, You know, all bets are off, God, because you're not coming through. You're not doing what you said you would do. You haven't fulfilled your promise. See, he's demanding guarantees. But it's God. And what he's going to learn over the years is that God is faithful. So he goes on a journey. He comes to the people of the East, which is a reference to Laban and all his family members, the clan living up there. He's the son of Nahor, who's the brother of Abraham. They've They've remained up there in Mesopotamia. And he finally gets there and he ends up at a well. And at the well, he's going to meet some people and some things are going to happen. And we're not going to go into all the details, but he's going to come into an encounter, an encounter with Laban. He's already met his maker, right, in his dream. Now he's going to meet someone else. He's going to meet his match. And I love this part of the story because I always love it when people get their comeuppance. When, when the bad guy finally gets it, you know, we, that's the reason we watch movies where, you know, things don't go well for a while, but we always hope and pray that the evil guy will finally get it in the end. Well, we, we're going to see this with Jacob, this deceiver, this manipulator, this schemer. He's going to meet his match. He goes to Iran, and at that well, he's going to meet his, un- his uncle, basically. Um, and, and it's going to be a tricky reunion. Now, he's never met him before, but it's a reunion in the sense that these two clans are going to come together again. This is the very same place, again, where Abraham sent his manservant to find the bride for Isaac. So we're seeing some of the things happen all over again. He meets Laban. Laban is the brother of Rebekah. And he'd go back and read what happened when he was involved with that whole story of finding a bride for Isaac. But Laban He's kind of a schemer and a manipulator in his own right. He's older, he's wiser, he's been around the block, and he's going to take advantage of this young man. See, he's come in search of a bride, but what he's going to find is trouble in the form of his uncle. 
Now, he's left what? Home to go to Haran to get away from a brother who wants to kill him, and he's going to find an uncle who's going to use him. See, we can, we can scheme and we can do all the things to play God and try to bring about our will or even try to do God's will our way, but at the end, God's will is going to be done his way. And that's what he's going to find out. He's going to get far more than he bargained for because the deceiver is going to end up deceived. And there's a part of the story that I like because, again, I like to see someone who deserves it to get it. But I have to be careful because I don't want that to be true of me, right? I don't like it when it happens to me, but I love to see it happen to someone else. And we're going to see it happen to this young man as he meets his uncle Laban welcomes him into his home. He's, he's friendly. He's, he greets him. He's happy to see him. And he basically offers him free room, room and board for a month. Just lets him live there. Just free and clear. And at the end of the month, he says, you know what? You're flesh and blood. You're, you're one of mine. You're, we're family here. You shouldn't work for me for free. Let me pay you. Well, by this time, Jacob's met his bride-to-be. He's met this beautiful woman, Rachel, and he goes, all right, I want her as my payment. I want to marry her. And his uncle goes, great, sounds good to me. I'd rather give, her, give you to her than anybody else. So your family, that makes sense. And so this arrangement gets made between Laban and Jacob so that he can marry this beautiful girl. This beautiful girl, she's beautiful in appearance. We don't know what that means. Their concept of beauty is probably different than ours. We don't know if she was thin. We don't know if she was heavy. We don't know anything about her other than the fact that he found her to be beautiful and he wants her. So he signs a seven-year contract. Now, I don't know what the value of that is, guys, but that's a long time. He basically says, I will work for you for seven years in order to one day marry her. He's going to wait seven years to marry this girl. And he agrees to it. It's actually his idea. Here's what I'll do. If you'll let me marry her, I'll work for you for seven years. And Laban goes, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. This is critical. This is so important. He loves her so much that he's willing to work for seven years. He's going to have to work the seven years before he can marry her and consummate the marriage. You know, when, when, when I was dating my wife, and I went to her father to ask her her hand in marriage, which was one of the worst experiences of my entire adult life, he, he played it to the t hilt, man. He, he, he would not give her hand in marriage. He just, you know, you know, love's a wonderful thing, Ken. You know, I think it's great that you love her. And I'd say, well, you know, we're, we're wanting your permission. You know, I think it's good that, you know, when you go and talk to someone and, and he just, he's going off on tangents. I'm like, would you just answer the question? He never answered it. He never said yes. He never said no. So I went with it. But this guy told me, Basically, you will not marry my daughter till you graduate from college. And that seemed like an eternity to me. It, it, but it made me work really hard in school because I wanted to marry his daughter. And when I graduated, I graduated in May and I married her in May. I mean, I took him at his word. 
See, this is what's going on here. This guy's going to work for seven years. And after seven years, he's worked his tail off. And he goes, okay, I, I want my reward. I want my bride. And so he goes, great, let's have, a, let's have the wedding. And they have a big wedding feast. And, you know, there's probably wine served and all that. And they have the festival. And then that night, the bride is brought into the tent. She's veiled. And when he wakes up the next morning, it's Leah. You've probably heard the story, right? Leah's the ugly sister. She, she's not real attractive. She's had evidently something wrong with her eyes, but she, she's not really easy on the eyes either. But he wakes up. Can you imagine to wake up on your, the morning of your, after your wedding night and it's the wrong woman? It's the ugly sister? This sounds like a Grimm's fairy tale. And he's not a happy camper, right? He's like, what, what the heck? You know, and he goes to Laban and he goes, what did you do to me? He, he's upset. Laban tricked him is what he did to him. He deceived him. She basically dressed up like her, her younger sister. Sound familiar? What did Jacob do to his own dad? He dressed up like his older brother to get the blessing. Well, he gets his comeuppance. The father substitutes Leah for Rachel. The older took the place of the younger, and he's not happy. And Laban explains to himself, it's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Why didn't he tell them this seven years ago? Because he knew what he was doing. He was, he's a master of his craft. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other one also in return for serving me another seven years. Now, if I'm Jacob, I'm ready to kill Laban, like Esau wanted to kill Jacob. But he basically goes, okay. He's, he's going to contract for another seven years. Says Jacob did so and completed her week. In other words, he finished the marital week with Leah. And at the end of that week, he gets Rachel. He doesn't have to wait seven more years. He gets her at the end of that week. But he has to work seven more years as payment for the second wife. So he gave, gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Jacob is, he's now got what? Two wives and seven more years to work. And he's got some really serious problems that are going to happen in his home. Remember we said he, he came from a dysfunctional family. We're going to see that this, this family is going to get dysfunctional, dysfunctional in a hurry. Because he's going to end up not just with these two, but in a very short time, he's going to have two concubines. He's going to have basically four wives. I don't know how anybody does that. Um, I've got one, and I'm barely keeping up with that one. He's going to end up with four, four wives. And it says he loved Rachel more than Leah. He knows all about favoritism, right? He had lived in an atmosphere of favoritism all his young life. And what he doesn't know is that God's going to use Leah. See, he looks at it and he goes, I've been cheated. I've been dishonored. I've been taken advantage of. And yet God has something planned for all of this. Everything about it has God's hand all over it. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, unloved by who? Unloved by her husband. It says, he enabled her to have children. He allowed her to conceive, but Rachel could not conceive. See, what's cool about this is that Jacob's thinking, Rachel's the one. Rachel's the one I love. Rachel's going to be the one who fathers me children so that I may be the father of a multitude of nations and bring about all the promises of God. And yet God allows Leah to conceive and Rachel is barren. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. 
And what you're going to have now is a picture of God's providential will taking place in this dysfunctional family. Jacob saw no value in Leah, but God had great plans for Leah, the ugly one, the unwanted one, the unloved one. See, God knows what he's doing. God's going to take the plans of man and accomplish his divine will. And I love how this ties into Jesus Christ. Look at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, which is a prophetic statement about the coming Messiah. It says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He was unlovely. He wasn't pretty. He was like Leah, the ugly one. No beauty that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But who did God use to accomplish his divine will? Jesus Christ, the hated one, the despised one, the unlovely one, the one who is least likely to achieve is the one God used. And the same thing's gonna happen with Leah. See, God was focusing on Leah at this point. Jacob is focusing on Rachel, but Rachel can't have kids. There's that story all over again. Sarah couldn't have kids. Rebecca couldn't have kids. Now Rachel can't have kids. And what has God promised? All three men of the husbands of those wives, you will become the father of a multitude of nations. And by this time, seven plus years into the equation, Jacob's got to be wondering, when is this going to happen? How are you going to accomplish this? But see, God was going to begin with the unloved one. That's how he's going to fulfill his promises. And I've put this chart in your notes just to give you an idea of how God works. And I don't know any other way to show it than this, that from Abraham... Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. Rebekah has Jacob and Esau. From Jacob, we end up with, through Bilhah, Bilhah, a concubine, we get Dan and Naphtali. From Leah come Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and Dinah. We have all these people being born through four different women. Zilpah, another concubine, has Gad and Asher. Rachel will only have Joseph and Benjamin. But keep going down the list. See, Leah gives birth to Judah, and from Judah comes David, and from David, through the line, comes Jesus Christ. Through the ugly one, the unloved one, the unwanted one, the one that was a trick played on Jacob. See, God is doing something incredible in this whole equation. He's bringing about his divine will through these four women in this really dysfunctional, dysfunctional situation. So we'll wrap it up with this. It says, when Rachel saw that she bore no, Jacob no children, she envied her sister and she said, give me children or I shall die. Who did she ask that of? God? No. She demands it of her husband. I'm gonna conclude from everything I've read in this passage that Rachel is not a Yahweh worshiper. And it's gonna get confirmed as we move further into the book. She's not asking God to do this. She's basically demanding that her husband make her pregnant. And he's like, what are you, nuts? He says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? I can't make you pregnant. I didn't do this. God did this. This is the will of God. You're going to have to bear with it just like I have to bear with it. I don't always get it. I don't always like it, but God is in control. And now we have the sport of competitive conception. It's the war of the wombs. These women start fighting and vying for, and jockeying for position and using their husband to 
birth children and they get envious. And, and what they don't understand is that God is in control of it all. Four different women, as we saw in that chart, give birth to sons. Only one daughter, Dinah. And everything seems wacky and out of control, like God doesn't know what he's doing, but God knows exactly what he's doing. It'd be easy to read the story and be left with the impression that the things have gotten completely out of control. There's no referee in this game of one-upmanship. Each of these women seems to make up the rules as the game unfolds, and Jacob comes across like a triple-A prospect who suddenly gets called up to the big leagues. He is out of control. He has no idea how to control these women. They're actually paying one another off for the privilege of sleeping with him. It's like he is so out of control, and yet God is in full control. This little country boy from Beersheba was going up against the pros, but Moses wants his readers to know that this is not some no rules, make it up as you go along, free for all. God is fully in control and operating behind the scenes to accomplish his divine will, and that's what happens. God remembered Rachel. God opens up her womb. She ends up giving birth to Joseph. And that's going to lead into the next parts of Genesis that we look at. See, God is always in control of the story. So the first thing I want you to talk about around the table is what's the main lesson that jumps out at you? What's the main takeaway for you in this lesson? What What did you hear? What resonates with you? And then I want you to glance back at that family tree and how does it prove that God was in control all along. Go back and look at what God accomplished in the lives of these women and through Jacob. And finally, why is it important that we recognize God's involvement in every area of our lives? Every area of our lives. Well, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again for these men and for their faithfulness, their patience, their willingness to come and study your word together. And I pray that you would bless the time around the tables, Father, and that we would be open and honest and allow you to speak through one another so that we might grow closer to you, that we might see you more clearly and trust you more fully. And I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.